Into the wild I'll go and into the wild I am It's been a while, freedom child Since I left my roots back home Into the wild I'll go Into the wild I am It's been a while, freedom child Since I left my roots back home Welcome to the Free Birth Society podcast. This is a radical space for women who are ready to celebrate their autonomous choices in birth, motherhood, and beyond. Together, we'll learn about wild birth through personal narrative, we'll explore the politics of birth, and we'll analyze everything that relates to our lives as women from a feminist perspective. Here's your host, Emily Saldea. It's been a wild freedom This week, I have return guest, filmmaker, and whistleblower Jennifer Lal. Jennifer was on the show a few seasons back, tackling the harmful nature of surrogacy. And today, we get into the shadow side of IVF that no one is talking about. We discuss the incredibly low success rates of IVF, the high risk to mother and baby, and how much of this information is highly suppressed. Before we get into it, I want to remind you that we are currently enrolling for the Blood Mystery School, our coveted 16-week immersive program for becoming a sovereign cycle and fertility coach that this world obviously needs. As Jennifer and I will get into more in just a moment here, women need an alternative. They need a holistic option for support when things get confusing or imbalanced in our cycles. So many women are fed into the medical system as young teenagers through hormonal birth control and have no idea how to actually care for themselves when it comes to menstrual health, fertility, and hormonal wellness. With infertility rates rising and the insidious IVF industry profiting more and more off of our lack of holistic support and education, we need educated, wise women who are committed to sharing the truth about fertility and helping women escape the system. With our expert blood mysteries guides, Nancy Lucina and Kristen Hauser, who blend the scientific and the sacred so beautifully in this school, you will learn the intricacies of menstrual cycle health, including how to support women in physiological fertility journeys beyond the medical system. You will learn everything you need to become the sovereign cycle coach and women's initiation facilitator for your community. If you wish to bring honor and reverence back to the rites of passage of womanhood, the Sacred Blood Mysteries, this school is for you. If you want to see more women walking away from big fertility and claiming their natural fertility, I urge you to please be the solution, be the alternative. If you or the women in your life are struggling with hormonal and menstrual disease like PCOS, endometriosis, PMS, and infertility, the Blood Mystery School is going to provide you not only with the path to self-healing for yourself, but the abundant, fertile career career path to becoming the healer for others as well. We begin February 21st. Enroll today at bloodmysterieschool.com. All right, here's Jennifer Lull. Welcome back to the show, Jennifer Lal. I so appreciate you being here. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. So let's just get right into it. We are here today to talk about IVF and the shadow side to IVF, the side that is harder to find. You know, I did a preliminary Google just out of curiosity, and the first three pages of Google are how amazing it is, the clinics, all their takes on it. Um, it really painted a very rosy picture for three pages of resources. Um, so as I said to you, I, I'm coming today with a list of questions to prompt you with. And for anyone joining us, the intention here is to just explore what is it um, What's what's what do we need to know uh, about it? How are how is it showing up in society? What are the risks? What are the dangers? And yeah, kind of the the whistleblowing you know element to all of this big fertility. 
um, is just so critical because it is hard, I think, to find a lot of this information. Yeah, it is buried um, deep, deep, deep um, because, you know, that's just the way the Google Analytics work. Right. You can, you can pay to come up top on the search engines. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Oh, I was going to tell you, we're doing a screening of exploitation in um, the membership later this month. Oh, great. Great. Well, let me yeah. know how it goes. Yeah. All right. So maybe first, let's just pretend that none of us know anything. And what is IVF? When would someone use it? And, and you know, maybe describe the steps to it. Yeah. So for our, our discussion, we're going to think about the individual woman who she herself is struggling with infertility. You know, I, I speak a lot on surrogates, you know, surrogacy using other women, egg donors using other women. But in the context of our conversation today, we're just and we're going to assume a heterosexual couple. So it's a woman and a, a man, a husband, a partner, whatever, that are trying to make a baby. Um, IVF is relatively new technology. I mean, we had the first test tube baby, which was Louise Brown, born in the United Kingdom in uh, 1978. And for your listeners who like to read books, I would commend them to read Jenna Correa's The Mother Machine. And Jenna is was brilliant in her looking at what was going on um, with women's health, women's bodies, research, and the promotion of what I call big fertility. So when we look back at Louise Brown, the first test tube baby being born, that was like a huge, everybody in the world, it was all over the front page of the newspaper. However, in, in Jenna's book, we all know that many, many, many women have been used, oftentimes not even with their knowledge, in experimental you know, procedures to try to get to the birth of Louise Brown. Um, so I think just historically, women don't realize that there's been so many women that have been, you know, used as guinea pigs in order to make the, t the first test tube baby. There, the IVF is under a larger umbrella term called assisted reproductive technology. The acronym is ART, you know, like artwork. I have beautiful artwork on my wall. <laughs> and And so... Assisted reproductive technology involves any anything that requires the eggs to be out of the woman's body, the sperm to be out of the man's body, the embryos to be made in the laboratory, and then implanted, frozen, discarded, you know, whatever. So IVF is one form of assisted reproductive technology. So in the larger umbrella of assisted reproductive technologies, women that are pursuing IVF are offered a lot of what we call add-ons, right? Because the goal is not just to get a baby, but to get a perfect baby or a mm. baby that we want, whatever that means. So we have all that different add-ons. I call them the P's, you know, the um, pre-implantation genetic screening. So once the eggs are out of the body, the sperm, the little embryos made, then we start testing it, right? Because we want to know, is it a boy? Is it a girl? Um, does it carry a genetic disease that's in our family history? Because we don't want to maybe pass on that genetic disease. So these are all the add-ons. ICSI, ICSI is an add-on, I-C-S-I, which is intracytoplasmic sperm injection. And whenever you see like in the scientific journals or sometimes you'll, or the, even the newspaper, even like the Daily Mail, you'll see this big picture of an egg. You'll see this needle poking in the side of the egg. And they inject the sperm in to the egg to control um, conception, to control fertilization. So ICSI is an add-on. Um, Pre-implantation genetic screening is an add-on. Um, uh, obviously, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. We're screening so we can diagnose. Um, there's a new one that's called PES. I have to read it. PES, which is polygenic embryo selection. And that's a newer technology where they're showing that we can predict probability, probability that this child will have diabetes, probability Whoa. that this child will have. So these are all, it's just not old school Louise Brown, test tube baby, one egg, one sperm, you know, let the sperm naturally fertilize the egg. Um, uh, so it's more of, you know, control, control, control. 
It's making sure that egg gets fertilized. It's making sure the embryo gets tested. It's making sure that we can predict what this child might be. So those are all under the umbrella of assisted reproductive technology. But I say that because women undergoing IVF are overwhelmingly offered these add-ons because we know IVF has a very, very high failure rate. IVF has, is very, very expensive. You know, like we one IVF cycle with all the add-ons is, you know, often a five-figure cost. Um, it's not cheap. It's not available to poor women who are struggling with infertility. Um, and so that's um, kind of maybe I'll stop there and we can kind of go on from there if there's any follow-up questions or new questions. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about what you know about the embryo genetic testing. Like, just why wouldn't somebody want that? You know, that sounds that sounds like just a smart way to optimize the process. If you if if you're going to do it, you may as well, right? Yeah, I think because. Um, no, none of the IVF add-ons that I've just mentioned have ever been studied to prove that they actually, one, help people. I mean, the goal is to help people get pregnant, right? Mm -hmm. None of these add-ons have proven that they have been successful in helping people get pregnant. They have not proven successful in helping people have a baby, and they've not been proven to be safe. And as we get into more and more of our discussion, I will talk about how we know that IVF is unsafe to the embryo. We know that ICSI is unsafe, you know, the, the actual pushing the sperm in with a needle. Into Safety the, measured by what? Measured by outcome. You know, a healthy baby, a healthy pregnancy, um, a successful live birth. <laughs> there, there's just been no studies that have proven that these, even though they're called add-ons, add any benefit. Um, by by research, by data. Oh, and but they're expensive once you start adding on these to just regular old nilly vanilly IVF, which I'm not a fan of. So what about this high versus regular stim, like, uh, or sorry, high stimulation protocols versus low stimulation where there's significantly less medication? Mm -hmm. What do you... What do you think about that or know about the long-term effects of, or success even, of those two options? Well, I think for one, the fact that they, they when I say they, I'm speaking of reproductive endocrinologists, which is the specialty of the doctors that do fertility medicine. Um, I think it's important to know, well, why did they come up with a less is better approach? One is because they know it's, it's harmful. You know, these high-dose powerful hormones are, are harmful and, and, you know, damaging to the woman, just the woman alone, it's her body. Um, so, it, you know, there, it's still, there's no guarantee. Yes, it's a, it's a lighter touch. You know, it's like I only smoke five cigarettes, cigarettes a day instead of a pack a day. You know, I only drive 10 miles over the speed limit instead of 50 miles over the speed limit. So, you know, it's this notion that if I do it this way, it's safer. Um, but again, that's not. Is it not? It's not, been it's not been proven. I can't okay. say it's that. I mean, I want to say, yes, if I only eat three Oreo cookies versus a package of Oreo cookies, that's not very bad for me. Um, that's less bad for me. Um, so it's, it's, it's that kind of calculus where, in my mind, you're still playing with risks. You're just trying to either naively convince yourself that this is better for me or less harmful, but but the reality is it's still harmful. It's still harmful to stimulate a woman's ovaries to produce eggs, to then surgically extract those eggs and then mechanically, you know, fertilize those eggs and then transfer those eggs back into your, your womb. That's a lot of steps. That's a lot of intervention where things can go wrong along the way. Yes, there's people that have had successful life births and have happy, healthy babies. But the question is, how are those women's health long term? And how are those children's health long term? And we now, since 1978, first has two babies. We've now been at this long enough that we have quite a lot of really good research with 
you know, that has large sample sizes because there's lots of children running around the, the planet now that have been made this way that show that the risk to women's health and to the children that are born through these technologies is not guaranteed to be fine. So what, what is the harm? Well, let's look at, um, I'm going to look at my notes just to keep myself straight. So I talked about ICSI and ICSI used to be, um, just seen as, you know, like just benign because the reason, um, ICSI came about was to address male infertility and male infertility usually looks like poor, low sperm count and, or poor motility. So the sperm aren't really the greatest quality and they poop out or don't get to their destination. So we'll help them by just isolating one and then just, you know, shooting it into the egg. Um, we now know that there's something about the way those little, like if you see fertilization in a microscope and you just see it like happen naturally, and it's not really natural because it's in a, it's in a PD, yeah. but you know what I mean? I mean, they all just kind of swim around. And, you know, it's like they know whether they have an, you know, an antenna or there's some kind of a chemical thing, but they, they know which one's going to actually burrow in and make it into the center of that egg. And boom, you're going to have, you're going to see the cells start to divide because you're going to have that, you know, beginning blastocyte, zygote, fetus, embryo, you know. Um, but we now know that technique is harmful, actually puncturing the wall of an egg. Yeah and shooting a sperm into the egg. Though we don't know yet, why is that harmful? You know, we haven't said, oh, because X, Y, and Z is happening in the wall of the egg or the wrong sperm that shouldn't have made it in. We, mm. we decided which one, you know, we don't yet know. So we're learning that that's harmful. And so it's harmful in that we've now seen that the children that are used with ICSI have higher rates of uh, chromosomal abnormalities so it's an issue of chromosome development, which makes sense because that's when the DNA strands unravel and they start raveling and do, you know, the DNA is where all the chromosomes are. Um, higher rates of uh, birth defects in kids that use ICSI. Um, and so we backed off on using ICSI because it used to be, again, it was for male infertility or male subfertility. And then it became like, well, let's just expedite and we'll just always use ICSI on, you know, any IVF, we'll just use ICSI because we can control fertilization, we can make, we can get an egg fertilized. And now they backed off on, again, just trying to use ICSI to address male subfertility or infertility, because we found out these problems that come about in children. Um, if, which, if they got the ICSI add-on and did the genetic testing, wouldn't they then be able to rid out the embryos? Well, not necessarily because the add-ons haven't been proved to do what they say that they do. Um, you know, and you, how many times have you heard a story of a woman being told she's having a baby that has X and then she has a perfectly healthy baby totally. or, she's, or she's having a baby that has, you know, it, it's perfectly healthy. Everything looks good. And then she delivers a baby with Down syndrome or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, so we just know in reality that a lot of testing is false and accurate, you know, misses things. Um, so, uh, so women are getting, getting the ICSI and the genetic testing and then still birthing babies with chromosomal disorders and, and birth defects, et cetera. Yeah. Or, or healthy babies. Because it's just, you know, again, use the example of the person who smokes who never gets lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And the person who never smokes and gets lung cancer. You know, it's, some of it's just a roll of the dice. You can live your life just perfectly a-okay fine. Yeah. And then, you know, things happen. So, I mean, it's a gamble. So it's a, it's a roll of the dice. It's, you know. but So taking away the add-ons, although I think the genetic testing is pretty par for the course these days. Is that true? Genetic testing? Is, is it is it true? I, I have this idea in my head that I don't know if it's accurate or not, that genetic testing is standard with most clinics that you, you're not, that, that putting the, the fresh embryo in to the woman isn't as common anymore. And the freezing in so that you can test it is more standard. Is that true? 
I don't think so. I think what's true, this is what I would say is true. Every step of the way is quality controlled. So the minute they um, harvest, I don't like these words, they harvest the eggs out of the woman's body, like she's a chicken and you're going out to harvest. Um, they grade them. Eggs are graded. The minute sperm is collected, it's, it's analyzed and it's graded, you know, fast swimmers, poor swimmers, not enough, you know, everything's great. Then they make the embryos. The embryos are graded because they always make many embryos, even in the lighter touch fertility medicine, even in the less is better, they still are going to end up with say four or five or six embryos. Those embryos get graded because they're going to implant the best one first. Mm -hmm. Now, whether in the grading process, they actually choose to do genetic testing, which think about it. Okay. You've got a, a an early embryos, eight cells, 16 cells, you know, and that's how the cells divide. And at that early stage of like five to six days of development, they go in with the needle again in this little embryo and they extract a cell, you know, because they have to have a genetic material to test. Uh -huh. And you have to wonder, is that a necessary cell that's been removed from this early developing it'd be like baking a whole cake and you you know you remove the eggs and you didn't put the eggs in it you know you it, that's a very necessary ingredient um so it's just quality control from the minute egg and sperm are out of the bodies because the game which is why back to your google search it's all about success it's all about how great how wonderful they don't talk about the high high failure rate and why do they make so many embryos and why do they put the best one in and freeze the other ones that are suboptimal and all of this grading is subjective. Of course. It's based on who's looking through the microscope and says, oh, this looks like a good egg. And then mm -hmm. Joe comes on duty the next day and he goes, oh, that looks like a bad egg. You know, it's very subjective. Um, okay, so I want to get back to the harm because we covered the, the some harm of the add-ons. But what about, like, just your light touch, most, m no add-ons? just like your, you know, tried and true IVF process with, you know, if someone like I know, you know, I know women who are more holistically minded who will try to optimize their IVF journey for minimal risk, minimal medications, which is almost laughable because the whole thing is, is that of course, but I, let's speak to that. Like, what what are the things that? What does it look like? First of all, because I still feel like you know a lot of a lot of us are very ignorant about what even the process of IVF is, and then what are the harms? What are the dangers that that you want women to know about? Oh, well, the the you know the less is better approach um, is new. So the studies that we have is not. Um, overwhelmingly going to be capturing those women so you know i i think because back to again 1978 you know for 78 98 you know 2008 2018 it was your standard old ivf kind of procedure so a lot of the studies will will be of those women and the children that were born from that you know that subset <clears throat> Um, so I'm not aware, I'm not saying they don't exist, but since it's not been around for that long, this, this less is better approach, um, I'm not aware of any really good studies that have been done just specifically looking at that category of women. So okay. a lot of the studies that I will use today in our discussion might have included those women, but it will not separate them out. These are just women that used IVF. So when you think of your, your group of women that are considering IVF, they want to do it the, the best way, the good way. Um, and I get those people all the time. And a lot of times they're religious people. You know, we're not going to do genetic screening because we'll take whatever baby that we want. We're not going to create, you know, 15 embryos because we don't want any of them to go in the freezer. We're just going to make one or two and then plant whatever those ones are and do none of that testing. Mm -hmm. um, but I still say, you know, you're still required to take fertility drugs perhaps lower doses, um, you're still going to undergo the harvesting procedure, you know, the needle laparoscopic or up transvaginally, you know, to puncture your ovaries, to remove, you know, the, the 
eggs, you know, um, you're still going to put them into the Petri dish and, you know, get them to maybe naturally let the little sperm do their thing and the, the, the winner gets to pick who, who wins on their own. Um, but, you know, here's one study, if you'll just bear with me so I can read it, and it's called The Effects of Chemical and Physical Factors on Embryo Culture. Um, culture is what they're in, the little Petri dish, the medium that they're cultured in. And it says, um, the development of the embryo outside the body means that it is constantly exposed to stresses that it would not experience in vivo, in mm. vivo in the body. So you've already got this little embryo that has no no sense of where the hell am I? Why am I out here in this cold, cruel world? I'm supposed to be in my mother's womb. Um, sources of the stress on the human embryo include identified factors such as pH, temperature shifts, exposure, exposure to high percentage of oxygen, which you're not going to get in the womb, buildup of toxins that are in the environment, and on and on and on. And these factors play a significant role in influencing the development of that embryo because it's not in a natural environment. Even if you do the less is better approach, you're still taking that process of conception, fertilization, whatever you want to call it, into you know, a laboratory, an open environment. Okay, and then keep going. So then they, what what is harmful for the woman and mother once it's been fertilized, it's an embryo, they've decided which one's going to go, now what happens? Well, okay, so let's say she gets pregnant, um, and, you know, then that leads us back to, well, the raw data um, that shows that it's a very high failure rate. I, which I is... Yeah, do we have, I, I yeah. was curious okay. about more specific stats. It, and again, it's, you know, your Google search is hard to find. Mm -hmm. And what you can find is really, it's the only place that's tracked in the United States is the CDC. Well, I was going to ask you that because I have gathered that IVF clinics and even doct individual doctors will inflate their success rates. And so is there a place that we can see real reported success? Yeah. And, and that is going to be on the CDC website. So every single fertility agency in the United States is is obligated to report their data. The problem with the CDC data is it's very, um, it's just a minuscule amount of data. Mm -hmm. So they will tell you, like, so this the most recent report that's on the CDC website, because they, so say, okay, it's 2023 now. So everybody's out there collecting their data, blah, 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 blah. 2024, they have to submit their data to the CDC. And then in 2025, the CDC issues a report. So the most recent data we have now is from 2020, because that's just the way the process works. Um, in the United States alone, there was 326,468 IVF cycles performed, just IVF cycles. And of that, 79,942 resulted in a live birth. That's a 24.5% success rate. Um, so that's just raw data of how many cycles were done and how many resulted in a live birth. And by definition, a live birth means the baby was delivered alive, but could have died one minute later. Right. It still gets, it still gets registered as a live birth because mm -hmm. it wasn't born dead. It mm -hmm. was born alive. So, and, and back to, you know, the, the risk, you know, one of the risks is these children are compromised because of the way they've been produced. So, but when we look at those, um, how many number cycles, it's really hard to get down in the weeds. You don't know how old was the woman. Exactly. What was her, what was her underlying fertility issue? Mm -hmm. Don't know. Um, was the live birth and surrogate pregnancy? Mm -hmm. Was the IVF cycle performed? using your eggs, but then put in Debbie's womb. Um, what it's, you know, it breaks down fresh or frozen eggs, fresh or frozen donor eggs. So it's really hard to just parse out. But I still think when you look at this big, huge number of, you know, 350,000 cycles, and you've got less than 80,000 just live births, were those twin births, were those triplet births, were those, you know. Um, it's just, and I've been tracking the CDC data for, 10 years. And even with new and improved, less is better. We're going to do it this way. We're not going to do XE. We're not going to do this. Those numbers stay at 
you know, a 75% failure rate. That's really high. And, you know, and for the woman who's deciding, I, I'm going to refer your, um, maybe you can put this in the show notes. My partner, Callie Fell, who works with me at the CBC, um, she did a very, very comprehensive report. And she's a labor and delivery nurse. So she, you know, and she was a bench research scientist in a previous life studying women, uh, endometriosis in women. So she knows the science, she knows, you know. Um, and she did a comprehensive report on the state of the landscape of assisted reproductive technologies. And she's got like one part of it is, you know, for the woman thinking about selling her eggs, for the woman thinking about being a surrogate, for the woman thinking about doing IVF for herself, for the woman thinking about doing IVF with a donor egg, you know, so it's, it's really parsed out and it's heavily researched with, with the studies. So um, for people that really want to like zero in and, and we actually tell people if there's a new study that comes about, let us know because we want this to be a living document that's constantly being updated with new and new research. But, um, you know, for the woman who's thinking about using her own eggs, I just tell her there's a high failure rate. This is incredibly hard on your body. Um, you know, there's plenty of studies out there on, you know, like Clomid and being associated with thyroid cancer and non-lymphoma mm. Hodgkin's cancer. Um, I think the verdict is still not out yet on breast cancer or other reproductive cancers. I mean, I always use the case of Gilda Radner. Some of your people are much younger than I am, but I you know, grew up on Gilda Radner, the comedian on Saturday Night Live, and she was married to Gene Wilder, and they went through six rounds of IVF, um, never were able to conceive, and you know, she died of um, ovarian cancer. Um, and when you, you have to be sort of savvy when you read the studies because, um, you know, we know that women typically, say, get breast cancer in their 40s and 50s. And so there's a lot of studies out there that say fertility drugs don't cause breast cancer. But when you dig down in, you see that they only studied, they only follow the women until they were in their 30s. Mm. Um, you know, and you really have to follow women over, you know, to, to when women normally get this cancer, to be able to say that definitively. Um, we know that a woman who does IVF and uses donor eggs is has high rates of preeclampsia, uh, you know, gestational diabetes, things like that, because she's got foreign eggs in her body, right. like the surrogate who's got a foreign embryo in her body. The same thing applies. Yeah, there's, we were talking about IVF in the private membership, and, and there's a nurse uh, I guess, I don't know what type of nurse she is that she was interacting with this, I guess an ICU nurse, because she said that I posted the question, um, why wouldn't you do IVF? I just kind of wanted to see what people had to say. And this nurse said on the sole experience of watching how many women have come into my ward with serious complications. And I asked her to elaborate and just like stroke and cancer and the, the amount, she said the amount of stroke that she saw women coming in with. I mean, what? Yeah, and they were, there was a new study that was just published uh, in the Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA, on stroke and women who, uh, who did IVF. Um, and, you know, for people that want to read that. And it's not a surprise. I mean, um, this this one particular study, because, you know, you have to read the limitations of the study, which is, again, I'm a little nerdy that way. And one of the limitations was that they, kind of back to the CDC data, they didn't separate out what kind of fertility medicine treatment the woman had, which is problematic because you, you don't know what was the straight right. or what, which, which technique they used. And then the other limitation was just encoding. And I see that all the time, like egg donors who have complications go into the ER and they're coded as um, abdominal distension right. versus ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Because oh, that's, that's reason, what she said she saw The reason they're presenting themselves is because their belly's full of fluid. Mm -hmm. So the doctor writes, you know, diagnosis, you know, abdominal distension, bloating, you know, fluid in the belly, whatever. So that doesn't get coded. So you can't go back and like pull out everybody, every woman who came into the ER right. had ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. So, so anything to say about the increased medicalization of the pregnancy, uh, the increased NICU 
you know, stays of IVF babies. I mean, yeah. that anecdotally as a, as a doula in the system for so long, anecdotally, it, it was the case, you know, the IVF yeah. moms were, they had more everything and their babies had more time in the NICU. Um, but, but what is kind of like definitely yeah. true about that? And again, back to our, our document on our website, there's two very good studies um, that were done in California where I live, which is important to me because we're like, nice. No, I say we're the reproductive tourist state of the, the country. Yeah. Um, and they were done at Loma Linda Hospital, which is a, a, you know, a good academic university teaching hospital. So they, you know, they see the worst of the worst often in those kind of hospitals. But it was um, a perinatologist who was one of the authors on the two different studies at Loma Linda. And one was sort of a snapshot of um, just assisted reproductive technology pregnancies at Loma Linda for one, one you know, year bracketed. So it could have been just women doing IVF on their own, just with them. It could have been surrogates. It could have been women who used egg donors, but just a snapshot of that. And then he did parse out um, another study, which looked just at um, surrogacy pregnancies. And you're right. These are women that are in high-risk pregnancies. Um, they're in high-risk pregnancies, which means they're admitted to the hospital weeks, if not months, before their due date, because, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to keep this mom you know, pregnant for as long as they can so that the baby can be delivered and be viable. And then, of course, because the mother has been in this high-risk pregnancy, these children are overwhelmingly spending weeks, if not months, in the, in the NICU. Um, that is, if they, they make it. And he said that they had a four- to five-fold increase in stillbirth. Um, C-section and hospital stays were up because of these high risks. Um, and, and he also did a really good job of just parsing out what happens when a regular old woman who's just pregnant the old-fashioned way comes in, delivers her baby, and goes home versus this? And then, like, the financial is just off the charts for what it costs, you know, this high-risk pregnancy. A clinic told my friend that having an IVF pregnancy does not label her high-risk. And I was like, of course it does. <laughs> of course it does, that they're not telling you the truth. Um, yeah, yeah, they don't want to label her high risk, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, that's great that they're not telling her that she's high risk. Uh, you know, we just. But know, I mean, once she goes to the fertility and sterility, which is the industry's journal. I mean, it's the journal of the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. The people I call the bad guys. Even their own study show that you know these IVF pregnancies are high risk you know, high risk with preeclampsia, maternal hypertension, gestational diabetes, the premature birth, low birth weight infants, on and on and on and on. Yes, you, 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 yeah, you may roll the dice and that might not be you, but you are naive um, if you think it's not high risk. Oof, right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So what do you think about the collateral damage from all these abandoned frozen embryos? Oh, well, like, like, is it true? I, I gathered that there's over a million abandoned embryos in the U.S. In the U.S. Yeah, and and I just I wonder your thoughts. All abandoned. There's a million frozen embryos. Okay, some of them have not yet been abandoned. So, what is the process if a family freezes fifteen? They go on to have a child. What happens with the agreement with these embryos? If they don't want them, do they just like dump them? How does all that work? Yeah. So the age. So they're working obviously with an agency that has is storing them and keeping them frozen. Um, and that's one of the areas where there's regulation because they have to regulate what's the temperature and. You know, what happens if the power goes out? And is there a generator? Because there's been incidences where particularly agencies have lost power, and that means embryos fall out. So mm. the parents uh, have to pay a storage fee, and that's usually a, a monthly. Um, it's not cheap, but it's, it's not crazy expensive, but it's not cheap. And if you've got your embryos frozen for 5 or 10 or 15 years, you know, it adds up. Right. But it's, it's the parents that get to make the, it's called the disposition decision. What happens to their, you know, frozen children? Um, so they can make the disposition decision to keep them frozen indefinitely and just keep paying the storage fee. 
They can um, donate them to scientific medical research to, you know, do, which I'm not a fan of, um, because that's a whole other problem of <laughs> ethics. Um, they can opt to get them, get them adopted, you know, through these embryo adoption uh, programs. So people adopt people's embryos, or they can let them die. That's kind of the fortune. Well, I guess they could choose to implant them. They could, they could have 15 kids. Right. <laughs> Um, but the reality is because back to the, the the research on the exposure of the embryo in this unnatural environment, a lot of embryos don't survive being frozen. They don't survive okay. the thaw. They don't survive being thawed. They don't successfully implant. So there's a lot of embryo mm -hmm. loss in that process. <clears throat> but there are people out there. Um, just last year, I think it was a couple donated their frozen embryos, and the couple that adopted the frozen embryo had been frozen longer than this couple had been alive. So say this couple, they were in their 20s, the embryo had been frozen for like 25 years. So they adopted an embryo that had been frozen longer than they'd been walking on the planet, which just makes me crazy, because I just think, what is the long-term effect of freezing a human embryo for 25 years and then bringing it to life? And will, there, will we see negative health complications or you know when i look back at like dolly the sheep when they cloned dolly the sheep and everybody thought oh she looks just like a sheep however she got really old really fast and you know very obese and had to be euthanized so you kind of wonder that what kind of damage is so what? do you know any sort of update on that story about the physical or or mental health it's, i mean it's it's the baby's probably a year old now or if you're okay. China, you'd call the baby 26. <laughs> you know, all those years of being frozen would count. Um, but, you know, it was born, a, you know, the, the headlines were it was a born a healthy, normal appearing baby. But we don't know, again, at the cellular level. Um, but, yeah, we just, we know now that there's the children that are created through IVF, assisted reproductive technologies, have higher rates of heart defects. Um you know, obviously all the preterm, low birth, weight kind of stuff, which, you know, that has longer term complications. If a baby's born a preemie, you know, they might have all kinds of complications. Um, they have higher rates of high blood pressure, obesity, insulin resistant diabetes. These are just some of the studies that have, have come out on, um, you know, cancers. We're now knowing that some of these children through IVF um, have higher rates of cancer, but we don't find that out until after the children are older. And you pair that with the C-section and the NICU yeah. stay and the formula bottle feeding, you know, the whole trajectory of, of their like technocratic life. And it's just amazing that people would kind of go, I don't think it's risky. <laughs> or that it's a risk. It's a risk worth taking. taking. Yeah. And, and I, I am, I'm incredibly sympathetic to people who, for whatever reason, can't have children. And that's why when people come to me and they say, we're struggling with conceiving, um, I always say, you need to get yourself to a really good practitioner that will give you a good diagnosis and really understand what's going on so that they can try to naturally heal and correct your body so that if you are able to conceive, you can conceive naturally. And the caveat is there still always will be people on the planet that for whatever reason won't be able to conceive. Um, you know, infertility has been with us since the age of time. And there's that paired with the impatience. I want it now five years of, of work versus some medication and procedures now, I think is a huge deterrent. And yeah. as we talked about in our other conversation, women are waiting until their forties to try to conceive. And then if it's going to take some time or if years of healing is now needed, if they discover that they're infertile, they don't have that time. So mm -hmm. they are facing a really challenging reality. Yeah, and the older woman who is successful in, in conceiving through IVF is even more at risk of complications. 
because of her age and because of the way in which she got pregnant. Um, and you have to, you know, to me, a big ethical part of this is also finances. You know, I think it's problematic that we're impatient. I want it. I want it now. But coupled with that is, and I also have the money. I can afford to do this. I mean, if you're a, a low-income couple that is struggling and you want it and you want it now, and they say, well, it's going to cost you $80,000 to do, you know, all this stuff, you know, you're like, well, I don't have that money. So you're, so I, because I try to live my life more kind of just other oriented, you know, and, and I, I think it's problematic that these are bad technologies that people want, but they're only available to people that have the means. I don't want to make it cheap or free so that low income right. I don't want anybody to have it, but it is that sort of entitlement. I want it and I have the money to buy it. So I'm and, going to get it. Or you have the health insurance that will cover it. Yeah, but health insurance is not going to cover a lot of this. I mean, health insurance oftentimes will cover some diagnostic stuff. So, you know, do I have blocked loping tubes? Do I have endometriosis? It might, you know, do some testing. It might provide, you know, some of the fertility drugs. But still, it's, you know, it can get, you know, most people don't have to do one IVF cycle and take home a happy chemo. Right. I think, yeah, my friend who's considering it that inspired this conversation, her insurance will cover the first round. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, again, it's, very rare that the first round, unless the first round involves 15 eggs that end up with 10 embryos. And so you have, and, and again, that, that encourages them to really aggressively get a lot of eggs so that they can make more embryos. Mm. We only have the money for one shot. And so let's try to get a lot of eggs so that we can keep trying it when it doesn't work. And we so, just know when you force ovulation, the eggs are crappy. They're not meant to be ginned up and super ovulated and forced out. You know, it's a natural process of how, you know, all the little egg follicles, I call them little cheerleaders, and they all get together and they're every month the cycle and they're cheering and one makes it out, you know, and that's that's intentional. That's a design of our bodies and the function of our bodies. So when you're forcing all these embryos and eggs, you're going to get poor quality eggs and poor quality eggs make poor quality embryos. Um, Meaning they're poor quality because they are getting forced out and they're not getting naturally selected to be the one that drops. Is that what you mean? Exactly. It's it's a a control. We're and and it's a false naive sense of control that we're, we're we're in charge here and we know better than your body. We know better than your cycle. We we can just make all this happen. Um, and we've seen that, you know, I always like to say Mother Nature bats last because we yeah. think we're, you know, it's just the hubris of it all. And now, you know, 30 years later, we're going, oh, my God, women's health has been compromised and the children's health has been compromised. And we've got a million frozen embryos in the U.S. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about the kind of the stuff that would be impossible to track, like the nervous system of the IVF baby, you know, and developing the difference of, of a frozen embryo versus a fresh embryo, like these things that we don't really have metrics yeah. to, to track. Yeah. But and really, I always say, would you like bring meat out of your fridge freezer that had been frozen for 25 years and serve it to your family for dinner? Right. I mean, it, you know, you kind of, and you kind of go in this tiny little, tiny little. Embryo. No, but we would, we would do it if it was frozen for a year. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think most most women I know aren't considering a twenty five year frozen embryo. You know, yeah. it's like yeah. it's it's their own most likely, and it's frozen just long enough for the genetic testing. Yeah. But there's been plenty of really good books out there that have been written by women who have pursued what I call the super highway of fertility medicine. You know, they get you on it. There's no off ramps. There's no exits. There's no slow down yield. It's just, you know, well, we'll try it again. We'll try it again. We'll try it again. And, you know, and I'm thinking of Miriam Zoll's book 
called Cracked Open. She just felt like she'd been cracked open. Mm. And, you know, she, she and her husband were not able to conceive. There's several other books out there like that of women that just get put on this. And it's, of course, you, it's, you know, again, it's Mary Lou Singleton. You can't say no to technology. If it fails the first time, well, the next time it's going to work. It's like, it's like the gambler at the casinos. Well, the next time I'm going to win, the next time. And you just, and you, you, you've spent so much money in your Right, and you life. need it to work. Yeah, yeah. This person I know that works at a major university that doesn't want to do IVF, they, they, get, um, they get flack from the hospital administrators because they're not bringing in dough. They're not bringing in the money. And, you know, if, you're, if you have a woman that has really you know, severe endometriosis, that might involve a very lengthy surgical procedure you know, to try to clean up and clear out that endometriosis, which isn't a big money money grab for a hospital. So physicians who sort of push back on this method of helping people um, take flack because they're not dragging in the dough. And I remember interviewing for exploitation. You'll when you show it to your group, um, the doctor at Columbia Medical School. Um, he told me that the fertility clinic at Columbia University in New York City makes so much money that it funds the whole entire OBGYN department. Mm. So the fertility medicine arm of hospitals or universities mm -hmm. is kind of like their football team, mm -hmm. you know, that brings in a lot of money. So if you're not a doctor that wants to get on that program and wants to do even the lesser, lightest, lightest, better, lesser, you know, big gun drugs, you know, it's not, it's frowned upon because it's mm -hmm. not dragging in a lot of money. Sure. I wonder if we could touch on IUI real quick of just what is it? What, what would you want women to know about it? Um, IUI again is, is where, you know, they take the sperm out of, you know, the man's body, intrauterine insemination. It's, you know, it's the old fashioned turkey basters and syringes. Um, you know, they just, you know, a, a, a man will masturbate, ejaculate in a cup, and then they just suck it up and shoot it up, you know. Uh, when I was a staff nurse at the University of California in San Francisco, a lot of the nurses I worked with would, you know, pal up with a, a male nurse friend, you know, and say, hey, I want to have a baby on my own. Will you give me some of your sperm? And, you know, they'd literally go home with the little, you know, piston syringes and you know, do it. Some, it's, you know, we call it low tech. Low tech fertility medicine because it really. Well, I've I've supported quite a few lesbian couples that just at home they don't involve the medical you know yeah, world at all. They just have a male, whoever but, donor but come over. But and it's an add on that you know my my OBGYN friend. I mean, male infertility can be fixed too, so that you can naturally conceive just through regular intercourse. Um, and a lot of times it's it's you know it's vitamins. Um, it's, you know, it's stuff that you could go to CVS and buy, you know, it's, it's things like, you know, changing your underwear, not sitting around in the hot tub, maybe losing some 10 or 15 pounds if you're overweight and some dietary nutritional supplements. So IUI, again, as an add-on has not been proven to be, um, necessarily successful in cases of dealing with male infertility. Now, your lesbian couples, they're not dealing with a man who has a fertility issue, I'm assuming. You know, they're dealing with a man who's, you know, so, so then in that case it works. But when you're thinking again, back to the infertile couple who's considering IVF or IUI, a lot of things can be done just to naturally um, improve sperm quantity, sperm quality, all those kind of things. Um, and, it's, and it's the same thing with, um, you know, Eggs. It takes one. You need one egg and one sperm. It's all you need. Um, and it's amazing what these doctors who aren't willing to do the big guns fertility stuff um, can do to actually improve um, the chances of a man who's struggling with subfertility to become fertile. But in IUI, the woman still has to drop the egg at the perfect it's time. Fine. Yeah. 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 It's all, and again, it's you know, it's mechanistic. You know, and that's for me, it's, you know, it's all about drawing lines. You know, where, where is my line? Um, and for me, my line is what can be done in, in keeping egg and sperm in the body to help a couple conceive. Mm -hmm. So for me, the line is 
when, once the eggs have come out of the body or the sperm and the embryos made, you know, that's my line. Um, obviously, not everybody agrees with me and they draw their line somewhere else. I won't use a surrogate. I won't use a donor egg. I won't do it more than three. You know, everybody has their lines. But for me, it's like, what? let's get medicine, fertility, health, naturopathic, whatever. Let's get people back to this is how the body is supposed to work. The body isn't working that way. Let's figure out let's a proper diagnosis. Why isn't the body working the way it's supposed to work? And what can we do naturally to get the body Support doing it. it? Yeah. And that's my line. What do you know or what have you seen around IVF affecting marriages? Yeah. Um, well, I've had... Uh, I can remember two gentlemen in particular when I've spoken at lectures come up to me afterwards in tears because their wife died um, from complications of uh, IVF. You know, oh my God. Three, four years later, you know, was diagnosed with raging cancer. Um, you know, so so that obviously impacts a marriage when you oh when, there's a spouse, when there's a spouse and it's dying. Um, and I'm not laughing because I think it's funny, but you know, it does it doesn't impact the, the marriage. Um, yes, again, back to the women who have written books like Miriam Zoltz Cracked Open. You know, your whole entire relationship all of a sudden is turned upside down. It's it's driven by the calendar. It's driven by when do we have to have intercourse? It's, it's Oh my God! I I started my period. I didn't conceive. You know, we failed again. You know, and that just it takes its toll. Um, the finances it takes its toll. You know, fertility drugs and you know, um, I, again, I'm a woman, so I can say this. You know, sometimes it makes a little crazy. You know, it's just you've got these. You know, and you turn into somebody. You look at yourself in the mirror, and you kind of go, "Who am I? What have I become?" You know, so there's just so many layers of stress. Um, children become a product or project, you know, you're working for this project and, and then, and then that burden, if, and when you do have a child, you know, the, the children are uh, under oftentimes under this, we wanted you so badly. We wanted you so, you know, we, uh, you know, so you're a miracle baby. Yeah. So there's, you know, all that kind of, you know, and that doesn't necessarily have to be harmful. I mean, our children should be wanted and loved and all that kind of stuff. But there's sort of this an added, you know, um, maybe even an expectation you have to perform a certain way because your parents spend so much money to get you. I did, what was it? Um, way, way back, I did the Montel Williams show. And it was on, um, it was called Extreme Baby Making. And there was this one woman that was on the panel with me that was like a very wealthy, like New York City socialite who had spent at that time $750,000 on her fertility treatment to have her children. And all I could think of on the inside was, oh my God, the pressure on those children, knowing that they basically are like almost million dollar kids. <laughs> it costs them. So yeah, there's so many layers of, um, of this. And, and then if you don't have a child, I mean, I know several of my friends that have never been able to have children and a couple of them that did go down the IVF route. Um, and just that sort of coming to terms that you're, um, you're a married couple and you don't have kids, you know, in a world that's, you know, if you're married, you're, it's, it's, this is the package. Um, and just having to come to terms with the fact that, you know, we can still have a really good happy, productive, meaningful life without children. Um, and there's just a lot of grief in the process that has to go through um, when you've tried everything, you know, and it didn't work. Mm, brutal. Yeah. Anything else do you feel like we've left out or that we should, we should touch on before we wrap? Yeah, I guess I would just, you know, I would speak to... Um, again, your audience is overwhelmingly women. Um, it better be. You know, huh? I said it better be. Yeah. Well, there might be some interlopers, some men that kind of eavesdrop. But, um, yeah, I just, I just want to end with really, really, really get a proper diagnosis um, and see if there's things that you can do naturally and, and to see if you can quickly come to terms if it's your story with your life, it's not a death sentence if you don't have children. And I know I have children and people go, well, you can't say that you have children. Oh, I can say, I was never raped, but I can say well, rape's awful. 
<laughs> no, you can't say that you were never raped. Um, you know, just to come to terms with you're a full and complete human being, and you're here on this planet to do amazing, wonderful things. And if you have really strong mothering instincts, there's all kinds of ways to mother the world's children. Um, and even if they haven't come out of your own womb, you know, there, you can be an amazing aunt or a, you know, a, you can volunteer in your local back to school program. You know, there's ways that we can mother if for some reason, you know, we have not been given children. Mm. And to those up that have kids, you know, welcome those people into your circle. Mm -hmm. you know, because we live in a world that kind of puts us in groups. And, you know, you're the married with kids and you're the married without kids and you're the married that's trying to have kids. You know, you know, blend us all in together and, and, and be mindful that maybe your friend that's struggling with infertility doesn't want to be invited to a baby shower. Mm. But you quietly ask her, you know, I would like you to come. We're having a baby shower, but I understand that this might be hard for you. So, you, you know, you make the call. And just have those kind of really personal conversations yeah. with people that you know and have that relationship with. You know, that you feel that you can have those kind of talks with. And that I want you to feel included in our family's life. Um, so. Yeah. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Really appreciate your time. I like being with you. <laughs> it's mutual. And if anyone wants to follow up with you and, and look into your work, how can they find you? Um, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. You just put in my name, Jennifer Law. Um, you can follow us at the cbc-network.org where you can find the free download PDF of our comprehensive report. Um, mm. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the show today. You can support this podcast by donating to it on freebirthsociety.com and leaving an awesome review on whatever platform you listen on. The more reviews, the more visibility the show gets. So let's spread the word of sovereign birth. We've always got a lot going on at Free Birth Society, and you can find out about all of it at freebirthsociety.com, at freebirthsociety on Instagram, and opt in to my newsletter below in the show notes. We offer courses on free birth, authentic midwifery, and the blood mysteries, as well as one-on-one -on -one coaching, in-person retreats, and of course, our annual women's festival. Our exclusive vetted private membership is definitely something to check out if you're looking for a community of wise sisters. Together we rise. We must speak our stories, claim our lives, and support one another. This is the living revolution, and I am so grateful to be in it with all of you. I'll leave you with our epic Free Birth Society theme song, Wild Woman by Aruba Red. I honor you for the wisdom you held, the ancient traditions of plant medicine and womb magic. I feel the spirit of the ancestors as I place my hands upon my belly. This sacred portal will be honored. Eons upon light beams of survival withstanding the eradication of our power by design. I will not allow the separation of our young to be forced upon me. My sisters will no longer birth in captivity. The picket line redefined from burning our wild women to paralyzing us and drugging our babes. Strapped down in a clinical white bed, drying up the milk from our breasts, keep your needles. My family will never again be doomed to chase those dragons or your poison. We reject your we choose love, everything with intention, death, ascension. I will fly and bring her back from the stars, conscious 